Who was the most valuable hitter in fantasy baseball this year? Who were the biggest busts? And who are the boons and banes for 2023? I'll ask Todd Zola and Ray Murphy about those topics and a whole lot more. Next, on a special Tuesday Roundtable edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, October 11th. It's show number 38 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have a special Tuesday Roundtable edition of Baseball HQ Radio for you with Todd Zola of Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and SiriusXM, and Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. We'll have three segments in this special edition. In part one, we'll talk about the big stories of the 2022 season, what we learned this year that we can apply next year, and the fantasy effects of some of MLB's big rules changes. In part two, we'll discuss 2022 players, our fantasy busts, rookie of the year, Cy Young, and most valuable hitter. And in part three, we'll look ahead to next season with our boons and banes for 2023. It's a big Tuesday special roundtable edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for joining us. Hey, what do you say? We got Todd Zola. We got Ray Murphy. We got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our show, it's part one of our Big Tuesday special roundtable edition, talking about 2022's big stories. And let's begin by saying hello to Baseball HQ co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy off-season, Patrick. Yes, and uh, as we record, happy uh, Columbus Day to all of you people south of the border. Happy Thanksgiving to those of us north of the border in Canada. And Todd Zola, welcome to you. Welcome, gentlemen. We're going to start by talking about uh, what I've cleverly titled news and stuff. And uh, let's start the way we usually do in these roundtables. What's the big story of the fantasy season now that it's finished? Uh, Ray, what do you think? For me, it has to be Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani and the which one of them is the AL MVP debate is not the part of it that I'm most interested in. It's really just a, uh, a blessing that we got to unbelievably historical slash unprecedented slash whatever you want to call it seasons. Like it's really tough to peel back the onion and figure out which one is more worthy of appreciation. They're just both so staggering. Uh, And then we got two of them at the same time. And I have zero oxygen for the debate about which one of them should be the AL MVP. I'm just glad we got to see both of them because they were a heck of a lot of fun. And we live in great times for great baseball achievements. They were uh, sensational seasons and sensational fantasy seasons. Todd, what did you think uh, was the big story of the year in fantasy? Okay, so, you know, from the analytics end, there are certain trends one can count on um, when making rest of season projections or timing out when you want to stream your hitters and when you want to focus on uh, hitters. Basically, what's happened over the past 15 to 20 years as a trend did not happen this year. So you you just throw it out the window. I mean, so I can't next year. After three weeks, I can no longer predict what the home run rate is going to be like we could have the past 10 years. 
And I can't expect to stream pitching early and late and not worry about the middle when one of the middle months was the best ERA of the year this year. So I, from my, from that end, from the analytical point of view, the big fantasy news is I don't have that foundation anymore to work off of. Todd, is it likely to be that that foundation returns at some point when things stabilize or is this the way of the future? It depends upon, I think, you know, clearly depends upon what, what the reasons are and will those stabilize? And I don't know what the reasons are. Uh, there, there are too many variables to, to, to pinpoint to try to figure it out. The, the humidor, what was, what was being done with the baseballs? Uh, were pitchers putting uh, stuff in their ears to make the spin higher or lower? Um, or was it just icy hot to keep them focused? Um, so I don't know what the variables were that actually made it the way it was. And if you, until you, we know that we're not sure. And who knows? I mean, that's kind of be the one, the one overlying factor that we'll never know is the baseball. I don't think we'll ever particularly know the baseball. Um, We have no idea what the humidor is, what they do. And we're still not a hundred percent sure. It's only one year. We can look to see, compare non-humidor to humidor because we have some parks that use the humidor over the past few years. But even that, uh, that sample is not small enough to make definitive plans. So what it tells me though, is it's just, it's more, if I'm trying to get, you know, you want to try to get cute. You want to try to find the edges. Well, those edges probably don't exist anymore. I miss some chances to stream in the middle of the summer and, you know, it costs my pitching accordingly because the ERAs were down. So, uh, in previous seasons, it helped me. I get a feeling that somewhere Joe Musgrove's ears are burning. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with Ray. I got all the excitement about Judge and the 62 home runs. Fourth player in history to have 62 or more in a $54 fantasy season. $54 fantasy season is really something by any stretch of the imagination. I can't remember the last ones. I'm sure they must have had Mike Trout involved, especially in on-base leagues, but... He's the first, uh, Shohei Otani, I think is, was an even better season for fantasy purposes than he had last year when he was the most valuable player. Think about this. The first player in major league history to have 30 home runs and 10 pitching wins in a season, not even Babe Ruth. And a lot of talk about Babe Ruth, of course, because of judge in fantasy terms, he had roughly the same season as Mookie Betts as a hitter, one fewer home run and stolen base four more points of batting average, few more RBI, few less runs scored. Betts was a $30 player by HQ valuation, so call Otani 29-28. He was also a $25 pitcher, and that's $54, the same as Judge, and to say the least, a lot more roster flexibility, depending on your league rules and stuff, but uh, I'm very excited that Aaron Judge had the season that he had. I, he didn't get the triple crown, I think, which would have been something that weighed in his favor in this discussion about whose season was actually the best. And of course, if you... Why? If Judge had whatever needed hits he needed to get the triple crown, I don't understand how that changes anything as far as the argument goes. Anyway, no, I'm just, just saying it, it's more just, interesting. I'm not saying it meet the two hits mean anything more as far as him versus Otani. What I'm saying is that 
depending on your league rules, Otani was at least as valuable as Judge was in this season if you could pitch him and hit him with daily moves, and much less so if the uh, league rules say you have to do them weekly, then you miss most of the pitching, right? So uh, I think that I think it's pretty interesting that Otani had such a great season from the point of view of combined value and was the equal of Aaron Judge in that regard. And I don't know that he's getting the credit he deserves for it. I, I guess I could be wrong about that. Uh, let's move on to the big story in real baseball. Todd, you go first. What did you think was the re- the real big story here? You guys just you you, you covered it in fantasy. It, to me, it was it was the Judge versus Otani, um, just following them, keeping something you know, getting people to talk about baseball. The frustrating part for me is some of the arguments that were being used which is so bad they were using them incorrectly <laughs> they, they don't they were using you know talking about war and not, not understanding what war is and, and and a few things like that so while it got people talking it frustrated me even more that you know they were citing wrong ways of using data and stuff like that but the mere fact that the mere fact that we that that, that Sean McDonough side on air because he was so depressed Aaron Judge was cutting into college football. So, you know, that that's that's a plus in our faith. That, that's good. It, you know, baseball me doesn't mean we're going to get back on the radio after July 4th next year. But uh, it means, you know, I, I think that was a good thing. So, to me, that was the story. Um, it, it, it got people, it stayed interested to the end. Attendance was down a bit, but I think, I think, not not you know not live, but people paying attention to the game, not necessarily at the game, uh, stayed up throughout the entire season, and hopefully that can bleed into next year and maybe attendance picks up a bit. I think I read somewhere that LiveGate was down slightly, but TV viewership was up quite a bit. Yeah. It may may have yeah. offset the uh, the loss right. of gate that way, although the splits are, are different and all that kind of thing. I'm interesting what you said about how the. Uh, the, the war statistic has found, finally found its way into uh, broadcast booths and they're begrudgingly taking it on. Getting younger people in the booths, I think, probably helps. But as you said, they're probably not using it properly. They're using it as a direct comparison tool, and I don't think that's correct. It's, I mean, you talked about it a little bit when you talked about Otani's uh, fantasy value. I don't think you can, you can just add the two together, hitting and pitching, because you're also including two replacement values. So I, I think there's something a little, little bit weird there. Um, I would, to me, uh, what, and I think depending on your fantasy rules, the big thing to me, what Otani does for a major league team is he ta- he's two players with one roster spot. And to me, that's especially nowadays when roster spots are so valuable, Los Angeles, the angels did not take advantage, but you know, if uh, to me, you know, if you take, I don't know, five starters, a closer and the nine position players, including the DH, and so you're looking to draft 15 players. Uh, you're done with your team after 14. So, I mean, and then you can start building your bench after 15 uh, after that player. So I, I think that that's what the Dodgers, uh, sorry, the Angels, the, the real advantage they have with Otani as a two-way player. Of course, they're not paying him. I mean, $30 million is a lot of money that he's getting uh, to, you know, for his last year before he hits the free agent market. But it's not, it's not bets plus – Whatever, I, I honestly forgot what pitcher uses the example, but he's not. You're not combining those two salaries. I didn't actually use a pitcher example, but, okay, okay. but I see your point. If you add his 
salary value together in real baseball, it is an interesting question about how much of an offer is he going to get after next year, or are the Angels going to try to extend him? And if so, what will that contract look like, especially compared to Aaron Judge's contract, which felicitously enough happens to uh, be coming up uh, as well. Yeah, the narrative is Judge bet on himself. Didn't he bet on his health and not so much his talent? I mean, we knew a healthy season. I don't think anybody said he's going to hit 62 homers, but if someone said, you know, who who can break the home run wreck in the AL, someone would have said, well, Judge if he's healthy. So I think we didn't bet on it. I think we bet on his health. And I think that's going to be a very interesting fantasy question is – are we just assuming, you know, I mean, Ray and I can talk 154 games, 156. Are we assuming that he's playing an entire season or are we going to factor in a potential injury again? Is he out of the woods? And of course we could say the same thing about Otani. Ray, you had a point to make? Uh, you know, it's a bit of a diversion, but I think it's fascinating to look at judges market this winter. And I, I think Occam's razor says the Yankees are just going to pay him, and that'll be the end of it but you know for all of the reinvention that has gone on in MLB front offices and everybody knows not all these smart GMs know not to pay for the year after their career year and all these guys know not to be handing out giant deals to players in their 30s like judge bet on himself and for sure judge is going to get paid more than he got offered by the Yankees that he turned down but like is the Brink, to what degree is the Brinks truck coming here? Like, you know, did 62 home runs go from him getting, I forget the number he turned down. Was it, was 170 million or something from the Yankees? Is he going to get 400 million instead? I mean, I don't think so. I don't think the market is there to the extent that everyone, that it seems to get represented. I don't think he's going to get 29 offers. Um, you know, there are, you know, some reasons why some teams don't make sense that are usually involved in that. There are some, some reasons why, you know, where judge wants to go is going to factor in. And like I said, maybe it's all a moot point. And maybe the Yankees just work out a deal with him before he even gets to, gets to the open market. But, you know, he bet on himself and sure he made himself some money, but I'm still curious just to see how much he made, because I have a sneaky suspicion. It's not as much as, uh, you know, your, um, your mainstream commentator seems to be implying. The uh, interesting thing, I think, in that market also is that uh, Mr. Cohen of the Mets certainly seems to be willing to open his checkbook, and boy, what a coup that would be if he could steal away Aaron Judge from the crosstown rivals and get his fan base excited about that. So I think that it may not be a case of Judge needing 29 offers competing with the Yankees offer. It's one guy, (laughs) and if that one guy is the Mets guy, then all of a sudden you get a bidding contest of the likes that we sometimes see at auction tables in fantasy and we root for both guys to spend too much. It's possible. It's possible my argument held more water before the wild card series. You're right. <laughs> yeah, the, the Giants are in there. And from a, I'm, you know, keeping this nerdy, we'll get light, and a little, you know, whatever. From a projection point of view, in his off-field home runs, they're going away in San Francisco. That would be a fun little, uh, you know, discussion how much is hurt uh, performance-wise going to San Francisco. But We'll deal with that when it happens, if it happens. Moving on to my big story in real baseball this year was that of the top 12 payroll teams this season, nine of them made the playoffs. The Red Sox, the Angels, and the White Sox were the teams that missed. And the three non-big spenders into the tourney were Seattle, Tampa, and Cleveland. And Cleveland was 28th in payroll. 
It used to be that lower payroll teams I thought could smart their way into success, the Moneyball A's, of course, and teams like that. Tampa has quite a reputation in that regard. But now all of the big spending teams also have that kind of information analytical advantage and maybe even more of it because they have more money to pay the best quants and those kinds of things. I think the fact that nine of the 12 teams in the playoffs are the top payroll teams is going to get a lot of people to say that the salary cap is a proven need, but to me, it looks more like we need a salary floor. The average per team payroll in 2022, around 140 million, 16 teams were under it and nine of those were under hundred million. And some of them were down around 30. And I think that if you own a major league team, you have a certain responsibility to at least spend the TV money if you're not going to spend anything else. Ray? I, I thought we had about three and a half more years of the moratorium before we had to start talking about salary cap and salary floor. I, w- I was promised labor peace and, and that those things were expunged from our conversation topics. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But it's not a question of labor peace. I think it's just a question of that the teams should be spending more money at the bottom end because oh, they're, sure. they're just cashing in. It seems to be a Pittsburgh, what, $38 million payroll top guy in the, on the team is $10 million a year. I mean, they are saying before the season even starts, we're not going to compete. We're not going to try to compete. We're going to maybe try to f- not finish last in our division. I don't even know if they succeeded at that because Cincinnati's in the division, but it seems like, you know, they always rant on about being a public trust and all that kind of stuff. If it is, they're abusing it because they're taking advantage of the monopoly. They're cashing all those big TV checks and they're not putting it into the product on the field and they're making money anyway. And something seems a little wrong with that. What was your big story, Ray? You know, just to piggyback on that before I get to that. I mean, I read something last week when uh, Don Mattingly was leaving the uh, Marlins that, you know, now if things don't pick up pretty soon Kim Ng is going to be on the hot seat there and to your point for what she's you know fielding a team with like you know $20 bills out of her wallet how much more how much more success does are we expecting her to have there with that I mean it's it is ridiculous and yes um labor negotiations aside you know there are clearly some teams around that need to be spending some more money um back to my Big story, uh, to, you know, clearly Todd and I didn't coordinate this because we kind of reversed our themes. Um, my, my my story here is about the way that the game is changing. And what we saw this year is kind of just the tip of the iceberg. We got the NLDH. We got the expanded wild card that we opened, that, that, that we saw for the first time this weekend. We got uh, the humidor, like, Tom, like, like Todd mentioned, and, you know, we're still, you know, groping in the dark a little bit as far as teasing out the impacts of that relative to some of the other changes that are going around. But these changes are just the tip of the iceberg and there's much more to come. And we're coming out of a period where aside from the ball, which is a pretty big, you know, other than that, how was the play Mrs. Lincoln thing aside from the ball, the game and the game play has been fairly stable for a long time now. And, you know, now we're turning over the apple cart and we're going into a period where there are going to be a lot of changes and MLB will tell you that they've been tested in the minors in the AFL or whatever, but they haven't all been tested in parallel. And I think the compounding effects of them are going to be pretty wild. And we're going into a period of, you know, of 
um, you know, where, like Todd was saying, you know, everyone sort of has the same information. I think we're going into a period where the information, the playbook, the answer key, whatever you want to call it, is going to be getting rewritten pretty regularly. And it might make our jobs harder, but I think it also might make our jobs more fun. I think that's correct. And I'm wondering if some of these low payroll teams are going to try the Whitey Herzog route with the uh, increased focus on, you know, the, uh, well, we'll talk more about this later when we talk about some of those changes, but it seems to me that what they're trying to do is encourage a more athletic running style game. And maybe some team like Cleveland, for instance, seems to have adopted early, cut down on the strikeout, slap the ball wherever you can get it, steal bases, take the extra base when you're running, all that kind of, you know, mini ball sort of stuff that Herzog did back in the 80s with that uh, St. Louis Cardinals team. And if they do, and it's successful, I think that could be terrific for baseball as a game. Yeah, no, absolutely, P, uh, PD. I was uh, going to mention that when we were talking before, but it would been pile long, and we're going to have a chance to talk about it in the future uh, in this podcast. But yes, the uh, implications, some of the rule changes, whether it's by design of MLB to point it in that direction, but there are going to be some repercussions that should help lower market teams. So we do move on. Uh, what did we learn in 2022 fantasy season that we can apply for the 2023 fantasy season? Uh, I'll go first on this one. And I think it's interesting that teams, again, are demonstrably distributing their saves across more relief pitchers. I went back and looked. Uh, I was listening to the uh, Rates and Barrels podcast with uh, Derek Van Riper and uh, Eno Saris, and they were talking about relievers and uh, Derek had mentioned that he had looked into one small aspect of this and then he said he hadn't had time to look at the rest of it. So I thought, oh, I'll look at the rest of it. And <laughs> in 2013, 78% of the saves went to the team's top closers. And 10 teams at that year had closers getting 90% or more of their team saves. Halfway through to now in 2017, 60% were going to one guy and only one closer was getting 90 plus percent. It was in Boston, Craig Kimbrell. In 2022, the year just passed, just over half the saves went to the team's top reliever, and no reliever had 90% of his team's saves. Emmanuel Clase was the closest at 82%. And before you ask, there's no team that shows any pattern. I was hoping there would be, and we could figure out which teams were going to be uh, the, the likeliest to have dominant closers, but it seems to work in reverse. If you have a dominant closer, he gets more of the saves, but they don't automatically say we're going to create a dominant closer. It just seems to land there almost by accident and then they, or perhaps in free agency and they adjust accordingly. But if they don't have one, then they just distribute them uh, amongst the guys that they do have. Seattle being a really good example. Ray, what do you think of uh, lessons learned? Yeah. So for me, yours is always top of mind. I'm always interested in that saves uh, distribution and it's always interesting as well to see how the saves distribution from the regular season gets completely ripped up in the playoffs, right? We saw the uh, we saw Munoz move to the back of the Mariners bullpen in that Jays series when, you know, he was more in a, uh, you know, in a setup role for the entire regular season because so much of it is about workload management. But when, you know, when the season's on the line, things get shuffled. Meanwhile, the Phillies go to Zach Eflin, which really is just to throw your arms up and be like, we will never understand closers, right? <laughs> just like, okay, I got nothing. What are we doing here? Zach Eflin? And it works, of course. Um, but, you know, putting that aside, um, my theme from here is sort of a counter theme or a counter 
um, caution, which is, I don't think I want to extrapolate or over extrapolate anything we learned in 2022 because of my earlier point that, you know, the chairs are getting shuffled, the foundations are getting rebuilt for 2023. And I think, you know, we're going to be going into a different environment and re and re relitigating re the battles of the last war is perhaps the wrong way to spend your, uh, spend your off season. So I'm probably going to spend less time on that than ever before. Todd, what do you think? Now it may be because of the inventory was just so much better this year and that being of minor leaguers, but the lesson learned is, you know, there were, I know there were some busts, but there were a lot of really good minor leaguers too that came up. I don't think you can categorically dismiss plan, uh, b uh, purchasing or drafting a young player early. And when you do your fab runs, or your, however you do your pickups, I don't think you can, you know, just be, I'm not, I'm not putting any interest at all into a rookie there were just a ton of them and a ton of them that did well, but I think it may have it. Well, they're always, always going to come up. It just, I think this, this class this field was just incredibly talented. So it may have had a bigger influence on the game. And I don't know that next year's crop is going to be, you know, as talented, but I think it's, it's been, it's kind of heading in this, it's been heading in this direction, but I think with a couple of the new rules with the CBA, uh, teams just there was much less of well when does the when does the R period run out when when is the uh, when you know is it going to be the, the Chris Bryant sort of scenario or the one mi in mid season uh, the the whole thing became he's not going to be called up in September because we're going to burn his rookie of the year well I'd much rather have that for three days than you know weeks worth of delay early in the season. I thought the CBA was a real important part of that. And we wondered about this time last year when the CBA got signed, we had a discussion about this and what is it going to mean to rookies? And we expected at that time that we were going to see more of them coming up sooner because right. the incentive is not, no longer there to hold back on that kind of stuff. And sure enough, we saw a lot of terrific rookies this year and we're going to talk about some of them. I know as we go through this end of season roundtable pod, uh, let's move on though. We talked about the rule change. Uh, in general, let's talk about them in specifics. Uh, Ray, what do you think is going to be the fantasy impact of bigger bases? This is a tough one to tease out. Uh, I sort of alluded to it before, but we have to consider the entire change in environment here and not all these things in isolation. Bases, the bigger bases, I mean, obviously, I think the question we're, answer, we're asking here is what's the impact on stolen base output. And I think the bigger bases are not the bigger dri biggest driver for that, but the bigger bases combined with the throws to first combined with the shifting all clearly are designed to yield an environment that leads to more stolen bases, which I think we're all sort of generically in favor of. Um, does it take root? Do we see more teams trying to exploit that? Or does it create a market inefficiency that... Um, smaller market teams can use to generate run scoring. I think that's all TBD because I still think, um, you know, 
we've talked about this before, and I'm probably channeling you know Joe Sheehan among others here. But stolen bases still only makes sense if you can actually score the guy from second with a single, right? <laughs> Stealing first to second, even at an 80% clip rate, and then waiting for a home run to score him is not good strategy. But if the shift changes are enough to start getting singles back into the game, now we're onto something. But I think that remains to be seen. So um, my early offseason take here is that I'm probably going to be pretty conservative on the amount of increased stolen bases I'm going to project in the ecosystem, at least pending more information. Todd, you're a projections guy. How are you going to be handling the bigger bases as far as stolen bases are concerned? And what are your other thoughts on the topic? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm kind of with Ray in that you need to consider bigger bases in connection with fewer throwovers and a few other things. I don't think, you know, I think people, well, John Birdie will steal 16 next year. I don't think the guys that can steal bases cleanly right now are going to benefit that much because I think, they, I mean, they don't need the bigger bases to steal. I think it may help some of the guys, excuse me, in the middle. Uh, I think it may help those more than anything else. Um, I think one of the, some of the, one of the things we're kind of not considering is with you know talking about stolen bases now the throw i mean it's if the if the first baseman has his foot at the edge of the bag we're going to nail some runners that were bang bang out before i'm sorry bang bang safe are now going to be bang bang out and i don't the whole jd martinez i'm using him as an example because he he fell short of the bag uh late in the season trying to beat out a hit um, you know, because he kind of stuttered his step to make sure he, I mean, or if he, if he had stuttered his step to make sure he hit the bag, he would have been out. So I, you know, I, the, the question being, um, yeah, I played little league ball, whoopee ding. But I mean, I always amaze me how the runners always, you know, hit the bag. And at some point they have to adjust their stride or they just have a stride just organically set to hit the bag every time. Cause it's so consistent. I don't know. Um, so I, I just, I wonder if we're going to, if we're going to lose some, uh, some close, some close hits, I don't know, but, um, uh, I'm kind of stolen bases. I, I mean, I think I'm going to just have to keep everything linear, but as the drafter, I mean, cause I think that's what we need to do with projections in general. I think as a drafter, I may say, um, I don't think there's, there's as many stolen bases are going to go to the top. So, I mean, it's maybe more important to get the the fifteen to twenty five guy in your in your draft scheme than it was previously because I think that's where they may go. We'll find out though. I thought the same thing that uh, the inch and a half or two and a half inches, the first base bag is two and a half closer to second, but it's also closer to all the infielders. And yeah. and all of a sudden you're going to have maybe as many bases as are gained by it are offset by fewer guys actually reaching first base because they're out on those bang-bang plays that you mentioned. And the other part of that same kind of thinking is second base is now a little bit closer to home. And the throw from the catcher to the, to the fielder at second now doesn't have to travel quite as far. It's only an inch or two, but we've seen throughout ba- baseball this year with all of the reviews at second base on close plays, two inches makes a hell of a lot of difference in a lot of those plays. And uh, I wonder if it's all going to end up being a wash because they didn't think it all the way through. Uh, how about uh, 
Todd, let's start with you on the shift. They can't shift anymore. Does that have a gigantic effect in your mind? They, they're, they're, legislating, they're legislating the shift. You can still have non-standard defensive positioning so long as it falls within the rules, and that being two infielders on either side of the keystone and both of them having their feet you know, in front of the outfield grass wherever that might be. And that's in, that's in different spots and different, and different, uh, and different, they may have to formalize, uh, you know, codify where the infield grass is because it's different in different parts. Uh, anyway. So, I mean, it used to be, you know, it used to be drawn in chalk on turf, but anyway, um, I, I, yeah, we you know what we're Ray and PD, we're going to see a bunch of articles about, this is how much. This is how many hits so and so would have lost or gained, looking at the in-depth data, shift charts, and everything, uh, uh, spray charts. But what we don't know is where the defense would have been positioned if there wasn't a shift. We don't know the batter's approach, and we don't know the pitcher's approach. So I don't. I believe it's going to have an effect, and it may have the biggest effect of any of these things we're talking about. But I don't think we can measure it. I think it's just something that's going to have to flush itself out. And you kind of alluded to it earlier about uh, more more um, athleticism in the game. One of the repercussions could be you can no longer bury a good hitter at second base with an excellent staff to know where to put him. Let's use Brendan Lau as an example. You're going to need a more athletic second baseman, and that's going to shift. I mean, then we use a shift. That's going to that's going to influence the the offensive approach because you don't have the same power hitters. And to, so I think that could naturally make the game. You know what? People say the way it should be played. It should be played in the manner to score the most runs. And that's what they're doing. That's hitting the ball out of the park. That's taking, taking bases on walks and hitting the ball out of the park. That's the way it should be played. That's not the way people want it to be played. Uh, so I think, you know, but if they, if they you know, do some of these things, I think the way it should be played tilts more towards small ball. What they really need to do is take all the fences and move them back if they really want that. Because when you think about it, most of the new parks since Candom Yards are more hitter-friendly than their predecessors, and that's where all this came from. Launch angle works because the ball leaves the yard. If the ball didn't leave the yard in some of these places, it wouldn't be the best way to go about it. Yeah, that's a huge part of it for me. Jumping back one point you made, Todd, is, you know, we're all talking about how the game is going to change next April, right? But there are some stuff that's going to take longer, going to take the longer term to tease out. And I think the Brandon Lau example is sort of exactly where I was going. Is there going to be, you know, I can envision a model where next year, in the beginning, it starts out that maybe a couple of extra teams are doing a little more defensive replacing on the infield in the late innings, right? Um, the closer comes in and the defensive second baseman comes in too. Maybe there's a place for the Raphael Belliards of the world again, right? Um, but then over time, does it mean that more of those guys actually play more often because they value the defense throughout the game? And are those the guys who, by the way, steal more bases and, it, and we end up drifting back a little bit more to the put the bat on the ball going first to third. I mean, that's what Manfred and company are clearly after here, right? Does it actually happen in terms of deploying different personnel versus the same personnel, just using different strategies? That's going to take longer to tease out. But I also kind of think nobody 
nobody in the commissioner's office who are making these decisions have, have actually thought that stuff through. They don't care. They're just worried. They're, they're just trying to, you know, get, they're trying to win a short-term battle. And I, I don't know if we know what the very smart organizations that are always looking for the edge are going, uh, how they're going to react to this and deploy their resources. Well, like everyone else, I expect a slight increase on hit rate for left-handed power hitters in particular, the ones who get shifted against the most often, but that will just encourage them to keep swinging really hard because they hope that if they top a ball once in a while, it'll sneak through or it used to be hit into short right field and they get thrown out. But if they think that swinging hard pays off a little better, they'll keep swinging hard, which means they'll strike out just as much. And one of baseball's biggest problems is that guys strike out too much and they didn't do anything here, I don't think, to encourage controlled swinging, for want of a better term. It's still swing from the heels, grab the grab the bat past the knob, and, and just go for the downs every time you're up there. I don't know that we're going to see a, as huge an increase in singles, especially because of this, because of this change in disallowing the shift. To, to, to spin that around, though, I, th- I don't... I'm not one of those people that thinks players swing from the heels and uppercutting is the reason strikeouts are up. The reason strikeouts are up as 101 mile an hour fastballs and 93 mile an hour sliders. And no, you're right. Nobody's done anything to fix that either. Well, have they with the pitch clock? Okay. Let's get there. Maybe, 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 I don't know. We'll get there. Uh, the next change uh, is fewer throwovers. I think this one isn't as important to stolen base attempts as has been the conventional wisdom. Okay, the way I understand the rule, if there's an unsuccessful throwover, the runner still can't lead off by an extra three feet because he'll still get picked off. He can move over a couple of inches maybe. I don't know about this and I could be wrong, but what there might be, I think, is fewer throwovers that are intended to see if the hitter is planning to bunt, but who bunts? I, I just don't see that this is going to be that huge of a difference. Ray, what do you think? I don't think there's a huge fantasy impact to this, but I think in, there are, in particular circumstances, it might be very fun. Think about, you know, Dave Roberts with the most sto- famous stolen base of all time in 2004, and, you know, in a particularly big situation, what the cat and mouse game looks like. I'm all for this. You know, it's, you know, I saw Terrence Gore come in and pinch run for the Mets the other night, right? What happens in the night, you know, in a ninth inning of a one run game when Terrence Gore is on first base and now this rule's in play? You know, that from a, from a fun factor, super cool. From, uh, you know, what happens on a July night in Pittsburgh in the fifth inning when, uh, you know, when someone's on first base and they throw over once. Yeah. I, I don't think it comes into play that often. Todd? Yeah, I think the the deal here to kind of you know, embellish what both of you guys have said, you know, to clarify the rule, you're allowed two free moves, over or if you step off, that's considered a move too, you know, two. But the third one, if you're unsuccessful, it's a balk, and the runner gets the base free. So I think what happens is the cat and mouse game, Ray, that you're talking about, is there's two throwovers and the runner is safe. So now, oh well, you can how how much can he extend his lead? Because if he's not picked off, you know, it, 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 if they try, it's a block, and he moves over anyway. It becomes a who has a better chance? Do so I have a better chance of picking him off, or does my catcher have a better chance of throwing him out? And I think the decisions are made that way. It may happen five times throughout the course of the season that we get that cat and mouse game, and it's going to be so fun to write and talk about. But I don't, yeah, I don't know how much it'll affect the game itself because I, I somebody did the math 
they're just there's not as many throwovers as people think there are right now. What I think it stops is the old I'm going to try you know I'm going to throw, throw my late my 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 uh, B team throw over twice and try to catch him with my A move that third throw. I think it may lower those sorts of things, but you know I mean this is kind of irrelevant because it's a rule of all the changes to me this is the dumbest. And I don't you know I don't use the word dumb lightly. Well, it's been interesting so far. Certainly a, a big year for news in baseball and fantasy baseball. We'll take a break right now and we'll come back and we'll talk about the players for 2023 and 2022. Todd Zola appears on Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and Sirius XM. And Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. We'll take a quick break here and we'll be back for part two, the players of 2022, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Fastball upstairs, misses, two and two. Ground ball, Velasquez throws across, he got it! Reed Denver's throws a no-hitter! He will remember the rest of his life. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our special Tuesday Roundtable edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And we'll be talking about the players of 2022 with Todd Zola of Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and Sirius XM, and Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And guys, uh, let's talk about the players in 2022, as we always do. In 2022, who is our fantasy bust among the hitters, Ray? My bust is Javier Baez, if only because as bad as he was this year, I think the funniest thing I saw all year was the uh, was the Photoshop of uh, 103-year-old Sister Jean throwing out the first pitch and Baez swinging and missing at it. <laughs> that just slayed me. But, but, but seriously, Baez was just terrible from... You know, and I'm bitter because it's a guy that I was chasing a lot in the preseason. But you know, first year in Detroit, he hit all of 238 with uh, 17 home runs, nine stolen bases, and that was with a September surge that got him back from being absolutely terrible to just very disappointing. Uh, maybe that September surge means that uh, you know that he fixed whatever was ailing him, and there might be a buying opportunity there next year. I, I need a little more time to 
uh, soak in my losses before I think about that. But uh, just a infuriating season from Javier Baez in terms of being healthy and incredibly disappointing. Todd, who's your 2022 fantasy bust? My bust is Ray for taking my guy. Um, remember that series? He, remember the series against the Red Sox Baez had? Where he, yeah, he was great. Like, you know, eight for 11 with four homers or something. Take that out. Imagine what would have happened. You know what? I'm actually I'm, I'm going through now, going through the list to try to find someone off the top of my head who could, who could, I could you know, be a bust. And that to me, it can't be injuries can't really be part of it, or at least you have to have the, the sense that they were going to stink anyway. And it may have been Abisal Garcia for me. Um, I know that there were some health issues, but he just never got it going when he was healthy. And I know it's Miami, and how can you, you know, just to be the lead batter, you know, to be acquired by the Marlins, to be your power guy is kind of an oxymoron in general. But um, I think that obviously, and the other, I mean, we t- you talk about some speed with Baez that never manifested. Yeah, I think you can say the same about Garcia. He's got all this latent speed that never puts to use. The Marlins will bring it out of him. Well, again, injuries hurt, but he was he wasn't performing well anyway. I thought both you guys were going to take Javier Baez, so I deliberately excluded him because I knew I was going last. But I know this is a bit out of the ordinary, but I'm picking Miles Straw of Cleveland mostly because of the object lesson he provides. He went in about 120 for an ADP in NFBC drafts after February 1st as fantasy managers tried to fill in their stolen bases, knowing there wouldn't be much else. They definitely got the not much else. 72 runs is okay, but 32 RBIs, no home runs at all, and a 221 batting average. This guy was a just a roster killer in pretty much every respect, and they didn't get the stolen bases either. 21 stolen bases? I think most of the people who drafted him were expecting 30, maybe 35. Put it this way, two rounds later, they could have had Cabrian Hayes, also 20 stolen bases, but some home runs and a lot of run production and a 240 batting average, or in reserves, Nico Horner got 20 bags with 10 home runs and a bunch more runs and RBIs, and he hit 281. I think there's a lesson here for the future, you guys. Watch out for the mild straws of the world because they're very on a very thin bit of ice as far as being the kind of fantasy producers you need with an eighth-round pick or a seventh-round pick. I think we, to be honest, Patrick. I think we've always had that, and it, it, it's always been an argument. But to t- you know, to tie it all together, the 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 lesson I think we have to learn, Ray, is, is projecting people. We project skills, but we also project playing time. And part of the reason that Straw was maybe it was rationalized as being the pick where he was. Well, he's going to lead off, and he's the defense is going to keep him in the lineup, and the stolen bases will come in volume. Well, the defense keeping them a lineup actually hurt him because he was obviously dropped to ninth in the order, and that's one of the difference, PD, between 21 and 35 is the difference between leading off and hitting ninth. So in general, the lesson, I think there is a lesson in that, you know, I think we we, we downplayed Dansby Swanson because he's going to hit lower in the order. Well, a couple injuries, and he's in second, and he had one of the best years, you know, best finished years. I think we just have to be very careful about basing decisions on assumed playing time. Um, it's. I know we have to make the decision. We have to put the ranks. But I think that there's certain players we have to understand have more, you know, the error bars are wider because of their playing time as much as their, are we getting their skills right? 
there's a lot going on with Miles Straw. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'll take the L there. I had a little bit of him. I draft where I drafted him. I was not happy with him with what I got in return, but yeah, it doesn't totally feel like a playing time loss to me. He still got 535 at bats. He still was an effective base stealer. He went 20, 21 stolen bases, which is disappointing, but it wasn't like he got a red light. He only had one caught stealing. For sure, he lost a ton of on-base percentage compared to 2021, and that's why he got moved down in the lineup. But a ton of that was regression of Babbitt, which I don't think we saw coming for such a fast guy. A 26% hit rate that he put up this year, you know, a 260 Babbitt for a for somebody with Miles Straw speed seems like it's an aberration on the low side. And he didn't run that much, even from the number nine spot. But if he had gotten on base more, and it seems like he should have, from a Babbitt perspective, he might have gotten those 30 stolen bases. And we'd probably still be complaining about the zero home runs and 32 RBIs, but maybe not quite so loudly. So there's bad outcomes here. There's bad process for sure. Going back to the earlier discussion, maybe this is a guy in a new stolen base environment. We don't have to value as highly because the resource isn't as scarce, but a lot went wrong here for a lot of different reasons. A lot went wrong here. Indeed. Uh, in 2022, Todd, who is your fantasy bust among the pitchers? So usually I need to go to an, an, an earnings list to, to, to learn this. All I had to do here is go to a couple of my teams and check out my rosters because I seem I seem to get them all of them. Um, so many choices. I'm only allowed one. I'm going to go Lucas Giolito, primarily because of where he was drafted, and other than a couple of teases of oh maybe he's back. Um, I to me it was just uh, it was it was just terrible, and he did it from a division where he was supposed to get some layups with Detroit and Kansas City, and it didn't manifest. And next year, we didn't talk about this in the rules, but I think it's just as important with the balanced schedule, maybe because it's not a rules, it's more of an admin thing. But with the balanced schedule, I think we have to look at AL Central pitchers as having a tougher schedule. So the bounce back, for Giolito may not be as easy as, as planned. And, you know, the extension is some of the AL East pitchers might have a slightly easier schedule. Um, you know, I think these are things that we'll talk about uh, once we get more, once we get more granular, once we lay out our rankings and lay out our, our draft strategies, I think this will, be, this will become a more uh, important topic, the, the, the schedule. But yeah, Giolito, I mean, we, here, I don't. There could be some overlap, but if you, if 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 you guys were going to use Diolito, it's not going to take you long to come up with a secondary choice. I had a look at Giolito, but I took my first tertiary choice, which was Jose Barrios of Toronto, and yep. I used exactly the same rationale as you. He killed my team. <laughs> I, I paid twenty dollars, low twenty two dollars or something like that in tout. American League, and he was a mid fifth rounder by ADP at NFBC contests. 172 innings, 542 ERA, 142 whip, and $10 in both 12 and 15 team formats. The crazy thing about Barrios's year is that his skills on a total season basis were pretty good. A 3.2 strikeout per walk command ratio. His ERA estimators were in the low fours rather than in the mid fives. 
just too many home runs at inopportune times, a couple of real stinker games where he gave up six or seven earned runs in three innings or something like that. But he killed my teams, and I dare say he killed the teams of many other fantasy managers. So Jose Barrios is my 2022 fantasy bust. Ray, who's yours? Oh, let me complete the trio with, uh, I think all listeners will feel like they got their uh, got their gripes heard if I th- throw Trevor Rogers onto the pile here with Barrios and Giolito, really just three <laughs> primary offenders of uh, staff ruining work this year. Uh, Rogers was just maddening because everything ended so well in 2021, and it seemed like he was just primed to move into the near ace tier. He, and just out of the gate was just brutal. And Ryan Bloomfield did a nice uh, fat and fluke spotlight piece on him fairly early in the season that broke down that he had just completely lost his slider. And that seemed to be the, the root of uh, the root of all evil there. But the problem was they kept running him out there, right? It wasn't until August when he actually got a, uh, a D, a, an IL vacation to go sort of lick his wounds and try to figure out what was wrong. And, you know, sure enough, he came back the end of August, a couple of starts in September and, looked better. So he's a guy we're going to have to make some choices on. I guess that's true for all three of these guys is, you know, there's going to be some profit opportunity or some at least spots where you can take some risk. If you can figure out which guys in this class are in fact the best rebound candidates. So that's a, uh, I don't have all the answers yet. I'm very early in my, uh, my forecaster slash offseason research piece, but these are the kinds of questions that um, are potential bount- potentially bountiful for 2023. Now, I mean, all right, one draft does not provide all the answers, but I'm in a draft that's a, a, a real draft for next year, uh, a real NFPC draft. Giolito went in the eighth round. Um, Rogers went in the 12th. And PD, your guy, Brios, went in the 17th. So I guess just getting one draft, no rankings, just kind of pure draft. I think that's kind of, I think that's interesting in that people trust Rialito's skills still and, and Rogers. And, you know, if I could, if, if I could shadow draft one of those three, man, I'd have a hard time not taking Barrios in the 17th. Yeah. Huh? That's a gift. Oh, all three of them sound like they're gifts actually. Cause normally when we have pitchers with decent skills and they have bad years, we, we expect a rebound. And I think it's perfectly legitimate in all three cases, maybe not so much Rogers as the other two, but well, I like all three of those guys in those draft slots. Rogers is the only one that Rogers came back the most as Ray suggested. Um, he started to look good. I was, I was using him. He, he was usable down the stretch. The other two guys were avoidable down the stretch. So that's, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. I mean, I you know, can throw Sean Manaya in there from a personal, I expected more from Manaya, but he's not, he wasn't ranked as high or ADP wasn't as high as the other guys. So he's kind of an honorable mention. Uh, but, but anyway. Let's look at the 2020 Fantasy Rookie of the Year. I don't think this is going to be that tough. Well, maybe. I'll take a bright spot on my tout team. $7 to get Julio Rodriguez. Returned about 30 bucks worth. And he missed about 125 plate appearances, so that's a quarter more. So seven more home runs, six more stolen bases. He could easily have been a 30-30 guy and close to 100 runs and 100 RBIs as well. So no big surprise here, Julio Rodriguez. Ray, who you got? Yeah, Julio for me too. You know, I think the rookie of the year voting between him and Rutschman is going to be interesting. Um, I think the law, as much as I love Julio, uh, I'm particularly intrigued by the 
long-term arc of Rutschman as a catcher as well, although I wish the Orioles would move that, that fence back in for him. But, uh, but yeah, Julio for me uh, going away just from an impact perspective. I can't say I had any of him this year, but uh, I look forward to jumping on the bandwagon going forward because he's just going to be fun. Todd? You, normally when I know my choice is going to be taken, I'll, you know, I'll find a secondary. I knew that, you know, I knew, I knew Rodriguez would be gone, but it, it was just so far and ahead of the pack that yeah, Rodriguez is the rookie of the year, but you know, you mentioned Rutschman, you got wit. I think that these are, whether it was the class or just, uh, you know, the rules, I think it's a combination of both. We have to be more amenable to drafting some of these players earlier than in previous seasons. Let's move on to pitchers, uh, the 2022 fantasy Cy Young. Ray, who you got? You know, this is unusual because I think we never get to do this, but I think I actually get to stick with my midseason guy who was Tony Gonsolin. Usually those guys go belly up in the second half, and Gonsolin, you know, certainly cooled off. You know, he, I mean, he, where else are you going to go from being 10 and 0 at a 154 ERA in the first half? But, uh, you know, certainly he missed uh, the you know, chunk of the second half, most of the month of September, but still managed to go six and one with a 314 ERA in the second half, which was enough to get him to a cool 16 and one, 214 ERA, 087 whip on the year. Uh, coming from, you know, a ridiculous 300 ish ADP, that's my, uh, that's my Cy Young for this year. Todd, who's your 2022 fantasy Cy Young? I don't know. Maybe I'm taking the easy way out, but it's Justin Verlander. And man, I, I, you know, my joke is it's Verander to me because I'll take the L. I just, I thought you had to be a little conservative back, back when we were drafting the age, the, the TGS, no one had ever come back successfully you know, at that age, et cetera. The narrative was if anybody can, it's Justin Verlander and people are taking victory laps and you know, I guess they were right. But I, what, what, what he did is just, it's just silly. And it, it kind of, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a thread on the HQ forum presently talking about Cy Young's and MVPs. And part of the discussion is what are we supposed to be judging the expected stats or the actual stats? And there's some people that think the actual stats are what should go into the major league Cy Young in fantasy. I don't, I think that we should be looking at some of the expected stats, but when it comes to fantasy MVP, that's what's going into our standings is what actually happened. So I think when we're talking about fantasy MVP is forget he was lucky, this, that, the other thing, um, you know, sub two ERA, all the strikeouts he, to me, he's the fantasy side. I kind of followed Ray's example and looked at a guy who had a very low ADP, uh, I guess, low meaning late ADP. Right. And it's always confusing when somebody says a low ADP, cause is that two is lower than 400, but I mean, late ADPs. And I went past Tony Gonsolin into the six sixties for ADP. And I imagine you probably have figured out already that most fantasy managers got Spencer Strider after the season started in the reserve rounds or in the fab process. And all he did was throw 130 innings, 267 ERA, 0.99 whip, and 202 strikeouts, which was 11th in Major League Baseball despite the inning shortfall. And only Jacob deGrom had a higher strikeouts per nine. I've heard guys on other podcasts asking how high Strider should go among starting pitchers next year, and I certainly don't know that. But I'm pretty sure it's going to be in the single digits. 
Well, he went in this, in this draft I mentioned, he went in the third. Of course, it was to Atlanta Braves fan, but even so, he wasn't going to go much longer than – he wasn't going to last much later than that. Can you think of how deep he was into the starting pitchers that were taken? The low teens. Oh, as, as low as that? Okay. Uh, I'm surprised by that. Uh, let's wrap this up with the 2022 fantasy most valuable hitter. Todd, you got the honor. Um, counting his 13th, 13th pitcher off the board. I think that's a little rich strider for that. For that. All right. So, all right. We, we talked about him. We're not going to, we don't have to waste a lot of time here. Um, I know what different formulas, et cetera, to, to, to do this, but Aaron Judge's season was just so far heads and tails above everybody else with the stolen bases that I think that he was, he, I know he had a high pick anyway, but his season was just silly. So to me, he's the fantasy MVP. I also took Aaron Judge, no surprise. Truly a season for the ages. And as good as he was in regular 5 by 5 which is what I imagine most of our listeners follow and use, he also posted a 425 on base percentage that yeah. absolutely crushed leagues that use on base percentage, as all leagues should. 18 points better than Freddie Freeman in second place. 56 points of slugging ahead of second place Mike Trout, 92 points ahead of second place Jordan Alvarez in OPS. Gosh, I don't know that we're ever going to see another season like this. Uh, I'm looking forward to next year to see what happens, but I can't imagine anybody not choosing Aaron Judge. Ray, did you choose Aaron Judge? I would choose Aaron Judge, but just to mention a name that we haven't mentioned yet, uh, you know, if you look for the allegory to the sort of Gonsolin value here. Um, the top, if I look at our dollar values for the season and look for uh, players who had ADP outside of the top 100, uh, the first one that comes up is one we talked about, Julio Rodriguez. Um, and Dansby Swanson, uh, excuse me, Dansby Swanson's first, uh, but he was his ADP was up, up in the 120s. So he was a top 10 round pick, at least. Julio Rodriguez, who we've talked about, is the second one. But I got to throw a little bit of love to the third, who was the uh, Adolis Garcia, who returned $27 and change with his. Uh, 27 home run, 25 stolen base season. So I'll throw him in the hopper here just in terms of uh, value exceeding draft cost. And with that, we move on to the third segment of this fantasy baseball round table for 2022, and that is looking ahead to 2023. And as you guys both know, because you're experts, I don't think you ever do boons and banes during the regular season. So we'll give you a shot at some boons and banes for 2023. We'll follow the usual format, except we'll ignore the leagues and we'll start with a boon hitter for 2023. And I'll go first on this one. My pick is Kansas City first baseman Vinny Pasquantino. Unless he erupts in spring training, he shouldn't cost too much. And he had quite an interesting season this year with almost 300 plate appearances. 10 homers, uh, 50 some runs produced, and a 295 batting average. And I don't want to get into the details of these stats, but boy, oh boy, did he not strike out a lot. And boy, oh boy, did he walk a lot. He was almost one to one in strikeouts and walks, which is really something for a guy that when you look at him, you think with that big body and that big swing, he's going to be like a 30% strikeout, 7% walk guy. And it they were both in the low teens, and I think that really augurs well for his continued growth in the major league level. Ray, who's your boon hitter for next year? You know, I'm really early in my research, so I'm going to, as I mentioned earlier, so uh, I'm going to grab somebody who comes, comes to mind just because I, I was actually was working on his forecaster box last night. Um, Nick Castellanos had a really 
weird season. I took sort of, I, I was in, I was pretty deep down the rabbit hole with him. Uh, you know, very disappointing first season in Philadelphia. We thought he was going to mash there, et cetera. Uh, but he had got, actually got off to a good start. By the first week of May, he had he was hitting 300 with five home runs. And in the first week of May, two things happened. Uh, one, his wife had a baby. And two, his um, he got hit by, by a pitch in the wrist. And I don't know which one of those was the trigger, but he then went into a funk for like the next three months solid. Uh, hitting all of like three more home runs through May, June, and July. But then he snapped out of it. Whatever the problem was, got cleaned up in August. He had a good August, hit 300 with five home runs, even threw in a couple of stolen bases. But then he lost August, lost September, excuse me, due to a couple of injuries. So, you know, overall the year was very disappointing for him. But when you look at the arc of it, I'm still not sure what the root cause was, but it looks to me like he had resolved the problem in August. And I think he, he makes for a nice bounce back candidate next year. Todd, who do you like as a boon hitter for 2023? This, maybe I'm stretching it because I wanted to find a place to talk about this guy. Um, and he's not the, the exact definition, but man, Michael Harris. I know he's got some flaws. He does not handle left-handed pitching very well. But, you know, it, he, we were talking about J-Rod's numbers. They're comparable. Michael Harris's numbers were comparable. I want to see what this guy can do over a full season. Um, one of the other weird splits was he was much better in the road, which is really weird because Atlanta is a good hitting park. And I think some of the regression that we see as a, a against righties gets balanced by the fact he's bound to do better at home and improve against lefties. I mean, I, I maybe he, I know he's not a rookie anymore, but I'm against young guys. I am, I am all over Michael Harris next year. Before we move on, I have a question for you guys as projections engineers, and and that is a few years ago, I'm sure you remember that an article came out, Baseball Prospectus or Fangraphs or somewhere, you know, of of relatively high repute in our business, and it said that what the the high the high value season that a guy has early in his career is going to be the highest he ever does log, and I wonder if Vinny Pasquantino and Michael Harris. Do they have growth in them, or is 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 growth kind of an illusion that we expect from young players? But how how much growth do you factor into guys who had good first years, Ray? The headline here, what I'm getting at, is that we I think are still dealing with, from a prospect point of view, the lost pandemic season of 2020, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why Harris snuck up on us in general, um, not to make excuses because um, you know he, he completely blindsided me, but. Uh, the the thing that I to to your question, I think we have to be a little bit careful in that growth curves are still pretty screwed up by that from guys who lost their age nineteen, age twenty, whatever it was season. And it's going to take a couple of more years for that to settle out because you know growth patterns are notoriously not linear anyway. And now we've got sort of a you know we've, we've still got sort of a once in a lifetime problem and teasing that out. So I think the jury's still out is my cop-out non-answer. Todd, how are you dealing with the young players? All right. So the piece you're talking about was more about, you know, we talk about age 27 being the peak years that we can't think along those lines anymore. The players actually peak early in their career. Now, this is kind of the same argument with MLEs that we run into in that that's kind of done globally using the entire population, 
those at the extremes don't always follow the global pattern. And I think that's as much as what we're seeing here is, is anything, you know, combined with the, the, the pandemic. I, you know, I read, you know, I keep thinking I've said alternative training site for the last time. Then I say <laughs> it again or write it again. But the, you know, the point being, um, I think one of the things we're seeing here is the extremes may still have some growing to do and that maybe, maybe the article, maybe they peak earlier or it's still going to apply, but I don't think we can categorically say that it's all down here for J-Rod. It's all down here for Bobby Witt. It's all down here for Pasquantino, Tristan Casas whoever you want to put in. Uh, I think that there's still some growing to be done. And it may just be that the skills are sustained longer uh, than it is that the, they don't, you know, maybe they hit their peak sooner. And that that's why age 27 doesn't appear to be a peak because it's not so much a, a, para, a, a parabolic curve as it is, you know, a, a flat a flat curve for a while and then come down. All right, let's move on. Uh, we have a 2023 Boone pitcher to get to. Ray, who do you like for next year? You know, going back to your point up top, Patrick, about the way the saves market gets distributed and increasingly fractured, I get particularly excited when a new lockdown closer bursts on the scene. Um, I'm not sure that Felix Bautista is going to be at all discounted in the market. I'm guessing he's probably going to jump right into the top tier. Todd, Todd can tell us how that happened in his draft, but uh, I will be willing to pay full freight for Felix Bautista because he just looked so dominant and all of the underlying metrics, the massive strikeout rate, the swing strike rate are beautiful and in the second half, um, Brandon Hyde used him as his near-exclusive closer, which from a uh, opportunity perspective also checks the box there. So if wherever the top-tier closer run falls in my drafts this year, I my early read is I am very early to I am very willing to throw Felix Bautista right into the top of that list. He left uh, the team about a week to go, didn't he, with a sore knee problem, uh, his landing knee. And guys that size, boy, when they start getting knee trouble, I don't know. Are you worried at all about that, Ray? Yeah, it's a concern for sure. Um, but, you know, these guys, I think, tend to burn, you know, the, these flamethrower closers tend to burn hot and fast anyway. So uh, I'm going to, I guess, place the bet that he's got a few years in the role before, you know, Chronic knee problems might become more of a concern, but uh, hopefully the uh, hopefully the Orioles get that tuned up this winter. Todd, okay. uh, before you get to yours, can you tell us about where Felix Bautista went in your very very early draft? Yeah, now I'm going to ask Ray a question. Let's say hypothetically you won this league this current year, and you had five not five points in saves, but had five saves. And let's say you didn't want to deal with that again. That 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 sweat about trying to win a league with one point. Um, and you were looking at, in the sixth round, uh, Ryan Hesley, Felix Bautista, and Devin Williams. Who, who, who would you have taken? Probably Dev before Bautista, but I, I think I'd put both of them ahead of, ahead of Hesley, given the, uh, yeah. given the health concerns there. <laughs> yeah, DV Aaron, Derek Van Riper, we actually we won. Humble, humble brag, we won this league, and we took Williams. Once The next person took Bautista. It was a sixth round. 
Presley went a couple picks before that, Ryan Presley, and Jordan Romano went a little before that. So I think these guys, these are kind of the bridge guys between the elite tier and the next tier. So I think I pretty would, much. Hmm? I, I would have taken David Batista before before Presley. I think. Um, well, he went two picks before, and I, okay. and I don't. Some game, some guy named Lindy took him. Oh, that so, guy, yeah, he's yeah, annoying. You know, so I, you know, <laughs> beginner's luck. Anyway, um, now I forget. Oh yeah, um, you want to know who my my picture is going to be? Yes, please. Um, I saw enough from Jesus Lazardo to buy in. Part of it's because he showed some pedigree with Oakland, then he got hurt and shipped off to Miami. And part of it's because he's my anchor in the XFL. No, well, he is, but that's not that has nothing to do with the reason. Uh, it has to do with the reason I watched him a lot. Maybe so there is a relation. But I saw enough from Hayes Luzardo to he could be the SP five, six, or seven that turns out to be turns out to be your SP two or three. Maybe, maybe ace, but I don't see them getting the innings to be the air quote ace. Although, what is what is that now? How many innings is that now? 165? So he could, but I love what I like what I'm seeing from some Lazardo. Well, yeah, I love what I I love what I see there too. But I I would have the question, you know, for sure. There's gonna, you know, you're right. The threshold for an ace is lower in terms of innings now. But kind of the last question with Luzardo is, can he go from 100 innings to 150? Right? And yeah, yeah. So, no, you're right. I mean, I I'm not expecting elite, but I mean, you know, SP two, SP three turn. I mean. 150 innings is that's around where sure. it is now. It should be 175, uh, but it's not. So we got to deal with it. And to be honest, um, I know it's, you know, apropos to nothing we've talked about, but the average innings per start went up. Um, it did not, people th- expected, can you go down? It went up a bit. So plan A is still to have a good starting pitcher. Plan B is to somehow maneuver without it, um, which I think is that's good for the game. We'll see what happens over the next few years. My guys, I actually had two, and I had a heck of a time trying to separate them. I'll briefly mention Brady Singer in Kansas City. I think this guy has a lot of tools that I like, and he's going to be underdrafted, I expect, because of the team context. And maybe they've changed their front office. Maybe they'll start doing things a little smarter and a little better. But he had a long stretch as a starting pitcher this year where he was uh, 285 ERA 110 whip, something like that. And then he had a turkey right at the end. He gave up a whole bunch of runs, which kind of blew him up a little bit. But don't be sleeping on Brady Singer. But the guy I'd like to talk about is Josh Hader. We're talking about closers, and he seems to have fallen right off the radar as far as a closer because he had a dreadful season this year. And I don't think enough has been made of the fact that he was dealing with an absolutely horrific personal situation. His wife had a tremendously complicated pregnancy. The child was born and had all kinds of medical trouble. And we tend to think of these guys, and we talk about this often, we tend to think of these guys as robots who are out there generating numbers for our amusement. But these guys are human beings, and anybody who's had a baby in the hospital knows what a difficult emotional situation it is, the loss of sleep, all of these kinds of things are going to weigh on a guy like nobody's business. And assuming that that little child is out of the, out of the woods and is on her way to health, then I think Josh Hader could come back with a vengeance and I'm personally betting on it. I don't, I know that doesn't matter about anything, but you know, the parents in the crowd, we know how that can be. And I think we need to maybe give him a bit of a mulligan on that score. 
Yeah, and in the middle of the whole thing, he had, he got, he had to move from Milwaukee to San Diego, which is of course dramatic too to you know have to uproot in the middle in the middle of that mess. So yeah, hundred percent with you. And it looks like you know it, it it never really sounded like his problems were physical. I mean, we were aware of the off field situation, but I think it manifested itself in. Uh, mechanical problems too, which do seem like they are somewhat resolved now. So he's always been a, um, I, by analogy, is a sob, right? He's a, he's a high performance, but not necessarily always ready to go out of the garage kind of vehicle. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, as you say, everything is resolved and he is ready to be, get dominant again and um, open it up on the highway, as it were, come March. And boy, you know, that's still a pretty good team. And if he falls into that third tier of closers, I think it's a tremendous buying opportunity. I could turn out to be dead wrong, but that's how I, I look at it anyway. Let's move to our Banes uh, in 2023. Todd, who do you think is a hitter who's going to be a Bane? I think Brandon Drury is going to disappoint across three different positions. And I think it's the position eligibility that gives him that little extra boost uh, as far as I, I just – is he better than we thought he was this time last year? Yeah, but he's still not as good as he appeared and still may appear in the playoffs. And I've already heard some people talking about Brandon Drury. I want to target a multi-position player. I want Drury. I think that just means he's going to disappoint you at three different at three different spots. I'm staying in Kansas City. I don't know what it is about Kansas City this year, but I think my Bane hitter for next year is going to be Bobby Witt. We talked about him a little earlier, and I know he's a great talent, but I've heard that he's getting up into the first round in a lot of drafts, and there isn't much of a track record here, and there's some things to be concerned about. You know, he only strikes out 21% of the time, but he's only got a 294 on base percentage this year, which cuts into his ability to steal bases. There's a lot of chase and whiff in his batting profile at Baseball Savant, and his hard hit and barrel rates are only league average, although he does have elite uh, max EV. And he's not really a good defender, so he, that sometimes defensive issues can come into the mind of a guy when he goes to the plate, Bo Bichette being an example this year in Toronto. I'm not down on Bobby Wood at all, but I think he's going to go much higher in the draft than he probably should, given the risks. Uh, Ray, who, who do you have for a Bane hitter? I think mine is Starling Marte, just uh, because he's in that typical late career transition from a speed first kind of player to a more complete player. And we saw in the Mets collapse this September, how important he is to that team. And he's become a really, really good hitter. And he, you know, is a fixture in that lineup and the Mets clearly suffered when he wasn't there. However, he is 33 and speed is a skill of the young. After stealing 47 bases in 2021, he only stole 18 this year that normally would if it wasn't for the age, you might look at that and think bounce back. But I think he's become so important to that Mets lineup that they would rather have him in there and hitting and running less, especially while the nagging injuries in the mid thirties become an increasing concern. So I think I would probably project under 20 stolen bases again. And as a result of that, he's likely to be overvalued for me. And finally, let's do our Bane pitchers for 2023. I'll go first. Another name that was mentioned earlier is Tony Gonsolin of the Dodgers. He was my pick to flop at the midseason roundtable, and I just don't see it, guys. I know that he's 
seems to have figured a lot of stuff out, but the skills are just meh. And when I look at the uh, 21% hit rate and the 81% strand rate, I think there's a lot of room for things to go wrong. And the likelihood of a repeat of the 214 ERA or anything near it are pretty remote. Uh, Ray, who do you have for a 2023 Bain pitcher? I'm going to go and call back to something that Todd talked about much earlier in the podcast. Um, as much as the rules don't apply to him, uh, Justin Verlander for me, uh, you know, as, as much as he shoved this year and silenced all the doubters, I'm going to doubt him again. I, I, I time waits for no one. He's now going to be 40 next year coming off of the incredible season and incredible workload he carried this year and will continue to carry for, we'll see how far into October, you know, look at what happened to Max Scherzer this year where, you know, Scherzer's always had a few more of the nicks and minor injuries than Verlander has traditionally, but, you know, Scherzer's starting to feel the effects of his age. And if you tell me that Verlander is a, I don't know, $30 second round pitcher, I can't take him among at age 40 in that uncharted territory waiting for the proverbial hand to father time to touch him or break him down again compared to some of the other, other options there. So I'm, if that's the price point and Todd, you can tell me if it was, I'm going to be out on Verlander. Todd. I'm control effing Verlander. He third, third round, third round in this draft. Too rich for me. Me too. Here you guys did take my first and second. So I did do a little work because I thought that might happen uh, and landed on this one may be too obvious because he's getting up there in age, but Tyler Anderson, I, I looked at I, – I, I didn't – I don't want to say I wanted to use Nestor Cortez, but I looked at Nestor Cortez and decided not to use him. Um, he came – he was drafted like in the fifth round of this draft. Like, whoa, um, I don't think he's a fifth round – fourth round. I don't think he's a fourth oh. rounder, but I don't think the – I don't think the, the, the fall will be quite that bad, especially he could benefit from moving uh, some of the games against Toronto and Boston uh, to, to another team. So I think it can soften the blow a bit, but Anderson, the, the metrics actually, uh, his, his well, his walk rate dropped, uh, the strikeout weight rate kind of stayed the same. It's the, it's about the home runs, and if you could, you know, things certain certain um, stats don't affect pitchers linearly. So home runs are up. That's going to help pitchers. Some pitchers more than others or drop. It's going to. Uh, benefit. Sorry, it's going to hurt more than others, and it's going to benefit if it drops. the The home run rate, I just, I think it's going to go up. Uh, part of it because of the division, uh, not as many good parks, uh, save for Colorado. In the, in the, uh, I mean, that's the only offensive park in that division. I think that Anderson and people looking at it, and he had a lot of innings, and he's going to get some playoff exposure. I just, I think they're going to be disappointed with Tyler Anderson if you draft him as your SP two or three next season. How much do we buy the Dodgers secret sauce in their entire staff out pitching their expected metrics though? Yeah. Um, that's very interesting. It's, you know, one of the problems with having to get projections out by November 1st, like I pretend, you know, I, I make that a, a sort of a, a goal of mine. I don't get to do as much research and I change a lot of players, you know, is it the defense, et cetera. Um, I think something has to be said to it and whether or not that is lessened because of the shift, I, I don't know. Um, Anderson went in the 13th of this draft. 
and it was by a notorious, I don't use the word notorious because that has a, a negative connotation. I don't mean to be that way. Uh, it's a what have you done for me lately type drafter, um, which I don't have the track record to say that's good or a bad way to, to approach it, but it's just that's his approach. It, he puts more weight on what recently happened than over the, than a, than a career mark. So I may be wrong in that. Maybe maybe Anderson isn't moving up the 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 level as much as I thought he was. But you guys did take my first and second choices. So you agreed with me on Verlander, even though he. Oh yeah, I mean, even, I'm not even that, though yeah. you wore the L this year. Yeah, and if it becomes Verlander, hey, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm not rooting for against anybody. Oh no, um, it was just fascinating, and I think as as you know to to coin the term that Ron Chandler likes to use. I think gravity alone, sure. right? And that being regression has just got to got to kick in, and we're going to see some more playoff innings from yeah. Verlander too. And on more than one occasion, someone pointed out that his workout regimen with his wife is probably tougher than, I mean, true workouts. I'm not. I'm talking your family podcast. Something in the gym where you know we're, we're very strenuous. You know that, 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 that whole thing. Stop so, digging, Todd. Stop digging. <laughs> I can hear the tweet, and, and they made a point of saying kind of what I just said is don't misread what I'm saying here. Anyway, so who was your who was your bane pitcher, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mentioned Tony Gonsolin. Uh, there's a couple of other guys, but you, you know, like you guys, I expect uh, a lot of your spreadsheets are color coded or conditionally formatted. So you get little dabs of color here and there to remind you to talk about something. And I was just looking at mine and there's a whole bunch of orange boxes here. And I'm thinking, why did I, wh what does this represent? I don't understand. And you know what it is? It's the strand rates of all the Dodger starters in the top sort of 60 starters on the baseball HQ, um, output from the, uh, CDG or, or from the, uh, projections, they're all close to 80% or over 80% strand rate. All of them. Urias is 87, uh, Gonsolin 81, Anderson 78, uh, Clayton Kershaw 80, and even this, uh, Evan Phillips was 87. And the other thing about them is expect for Urias, all of them are under one home run per nine innings. And I wonder if that is something that we can start looking at and saying, is this a Dodger thing that they're coaching up or that they're changing approach for the pitchers to try to avoid having um, runners on base score? Are they being better from the stretch? Something like that. It's, it's an interesting thing to look at because we give the Dodgers and other teams a lot of credit for player development and other organizational things that they do. And we gave the Giants an awful lot of credit last year for having all those pitching coaches uh, lining up uh, to, to coach those pitchers to pretty successful seasons. Ray, is it possible that the Dodgers are really just focusing really, really hard on how not to let opposing base runners come all the way around and touch home plate? There's something going on there. It, it, it's actually uh, the, the the time it caught my eye was uh, back in the summer, Ryan Bloomfield did a... Uh, fact of Luke spotlight on Gonsolin and uh in the course of breaking down that chart he uh bring down Gonsolin he went a little bit into the Dodgers and found that they are a team they, they were team wide among the best at uh as I said earlier out pitching their XERA and you know we didn't do the deep dive there into the Dodgers to figure out exactly why but I think that's um 
that's a, a fertile topic for some off-season research. And while you know there are reasons, as we're talking about here, to not necessarily be in on Gonsolin or Tyler Anderson or Kershaw for various reasons for next year, I'm going to be darn interested in whoever the Dodgers target to augment that rotation, right? Um, because presumably they're going to be targeting people that whatever their secret sauce is – someone who fits right into that. So uh, that's going to be a place where I'm paying some attention as the uh, off-season transaction market heats up. Todd, do you think that you're in a position to say whether your projections will start to reflect team-wide things like that? Give uh, give uh, the Dodgers, for instance, a bit of a pass on having to meet certain targets to get ex- expected ERAs where you want them? Or are they going to get the benefit of your doubt in the future as you start doing these projections and looking at team things like this? Well, I mean, you can, we can check Babbitt. We can check a few things to see defensively. Were they that much better? Um, what happened this year gets rolled into my basis. So these pitchers will get credit for it. They, it will also be weighed down. Hence the gravity by the past couple of years. And the other thing we need to keep in mind, and this speaks towards the Dodgers doing something, is the 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 like you you, you folks call strand rate, what Bangrofs call left on base percentage, very similar thing, slightly different calculation, same you know same way to approach it. Aces can seventy two percent is like the league average. Aces can sustain seventy eight percent. It's not lucky. If you're 78, it's just you're good. That's one of these. This is one of those luck metrics where there's a little bit more control over. Um, and a lot of it has to do with uh, home run limitations. So when we're talking 80, 81%, we're not as much above the norm as if we're thinking 72 is the norm. We're, you know, they're these, they're these are really good pitchers. So to me, that, that kind of maybe there is something the Dodgers are doing. So they're going to get credit for it. But I don't know that, I mean, it, it's also going to be weighed down by previous seasons. So maybe, maybe as trying to force a left on base or strand rate to 72 or three, maybe I have the Dodgers at 75, maybe not all of the way up 78. Maybe, I, you know, so I think that's probably going to be the repercussion. Um, I do think it's, Ray, you, you talked about, the, the research absolutely think it needs to be done, but it's after one year. And I think you'll agree. It's still more of the descriptive than predictive way of about it. But if it happens again this year, then maybe we have to start thinking about adjusting our models to account for this sort of thing. Um, but again, with the, all these different variables, what if the balls bounce to your next year? Yep. Well, those low home run rates are up. And so are the, uh, so are the, you know, in the, in the strand rates are down. Well, the other side of this is hit rates, which are also very low relative to the league, uh, 24%, 21, 26, 28, yeah. 24, yeah. they're all under 30%. So they're all babbipping under 300. And yet when you look at their ground ball rates, they're not that out of the ordinary 40, 43, 40, uh, 47, 46 for, uh, for, uh, Kershaw and for F- uh, Evan Phillips maybe a bit of an outlier, but 40% ground ball rate and 24% hit rate doesn't seem to jive, Ray. No, it doesn't. And then you, 
as you well know, the other thing you want to look at that I don't have in front of me there is to go down into the hard, medium, and soft hit and how much, and then you might start to get some idea of how much positioning is factoring into that or, um, you know, the benefit of Freddie Freeman at first base, who's a, uh, you know, an excellent defender making the entire infield better. Um, the Dodgers infield was actually a little more stable this year than it usually was in terms of, uh, you know, health and alignment that it used to be that they would run, you know, they, it didn't seem like they particularly valued infield defense because they would run the likes of Max Muncy out to second base on a semi-regular basis. They didn't do that so much this year. Um, but you know, it's not, it's probably not one thing. It's probably the Dodgers just accumulating a bunch of, you know, mild edges and rolling it into a, uh, you know, an overall package that well, is just very well developed. You, you alluded to the fact that the ground ball rates weren't extreme. Okay, so they're hitting the ball in the air. And now yeah. we said that they're not giving up homers. Balls in the air that don't leave the yard equal they're outs, outs, right? So yep. how sustainable is that? You know, we're thinking ground ball, infield defense. How is it? Is it that their outfield defense is positioned better um, or is it just that the the even though it's you know it, we, you can have weak contact on fly balls is that what we're seeing are we seeing weak contact in fly balls and is that you know there's thirty there's thirty teams there's going to be some weird stuff that happens when it happens to the best team in the league it's considered a skill if it happened to the you know the Pittsburgh Pirates you know they were lucky their pitchers got lucky so it would be very curious I think you know I think that's part of it as well. And uh, that, you know, that stadium, actually the stadium doesn't really suppress homers. No. Uh, which is kind of weird. So, uh, yeah, are the, pitch, are the pitchers suppressing homers? Is it just one, you know, you know, like I said, you flip a coin six times, one person's going to get six heads. That wasn't luck. That was probability. Are we just seeing the edge of the probability of the Dodgers just having one of those seasons where it just happened and next year, you know, they flipped three heads and three tails and the left on bases dropped. A year ago at this time, we thought the Giants had the secret sauce, right? And then they just yeah. went out and went, what, 80 and 82? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, the the temptation is to look at five guys from one team all having similar outperformances and immediately crediting it to something that the team is doing. And as you said, it might just be the way things worked out this year. It definitely is something that should be looked at, and I'll put it on my list of things I need to look yeah. at all, along with the dishwasher, you know, and the <laughs> and the dogs' uh, problems and all all of that kind of stuff. But that's a good thing about talking about stuff like this is it does open up all kinds of avenues of inquiry. And before we go guys, uh, Ray, what's the latest on first pitch Arizona registrations? How's the schedule shaping up stuff like that? We are within a month, right? We're four weeks away, which means the uh, schedule is pretty well developed now. That's up on the website. Keep an eye on your email and keep an eye on the web on the uh, baseball HQ website. If you have not registered, uh, we may have a, uh, quick little last couple of seats available flash sale coming this week. So uh, there'll be a chance to save a couple of bucks. And uh, if you can find a flight and get out there, we would still love to have you. So uh, keep an eye on that on the Baseball HQ website or your email box or the Baseball HQ Twitter for details because we'll uh, probably get that out by the middle of this week and we'll do a quick 48-hour uh, last push or something like that to see if we can uh, fill every chair in the ballroom in four weeks. Todd, when are you going out? I am heading out on the Wednesday. I am coming back on the Monday. Uh, very, very much looking forward to it. 
Um, I like to come out on the Wednesday. It happens to be the only game I'll probably be able to go to surprise. I don't. I like. I. I don't mind going to surprise. I much. I prefer it on a non uh, seminar day. So Wednesday is good. Um, so yeah, I'm very much looking forward to the uh, to the event this year. That sounds like a great panel a great set of um uh the audience is going to be wonderful i you know i mentioned this ray and, and brent and, and 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 run off off air if you will i think there is a wonderful influx of younger speakers and conference attendees that i to me it just and i mean I don't, it doesn't look like i'm energized but i just sit back and i kind of in a chair maybe a rocking chair and just kind of like smile i said you know what this is good. This 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 is in a good place, and uh, very much looking forward to this. You know, having that happen again in a couple of weeks. Come on, you kids, play on my lawn. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, and I know you guys are doing a great job of integrating some of these uh, gals and girl uh, gals and guys into the uh, talks. We try to grab them, bring them into Tout Wars. Um, I, I, you know, you know, listen, there's a bunch of people that have come in since the pandemic and some have learned that, you know what, once my job and my family kicks back in, I need to back off, but there still has been kind of a, a huge influx over the past couple of years. Listen, not everybody's great, but no one, not everybody was great when I was younger either, but I just, I, I like where we are at. You mentioned Patrick about, you know, oh, these are some ideas you know, hope you have a notebook with you. Cause you're going to leave, you're going to leave Phoenix and Mesa with a bunch more ideas. I should uh, mention our boons and banes that we had. Uh, our boon hitters were Vinny Pasquantino, Nick Castellanos, Michael Harris, our boon pitchers, Felix Bautista, Jesus Lazardo, and Josh Hader, our bane hitters, Brendan Drury, Bobby Witt, and Starling Marte, and our bane pitchers, Tony Gonsolin, Justin Verlander, and Tyler Anderson. Boy, guys, uh, this was a lot of fun as I expected it would be. Ray, tell our listeners where they can keep in touch with you. I'll be in the bunker with the baseball forecaster for another month or six weeks or so. I will emerge with uh, the book with uh, Brent and Ron chiseled in stone tablets uh, the week the weekend before Thanksgiving. But I will be dropping some uh, insights in the meantime uh, at Ray HQ on Twitter and probably an article or two on the website along the way too because we got to keep the uh, we got to keep the content coming. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys in Arizona in four weeks or so. Travel safe and. Uh, We'll probably, uh, well, we're definitely doing the, this, uh, the, the annual live podcast, right, Peter? Yes, we're on for Saturday afternoon, I think. It's going to be a busy Saturday for me. I'm doing the uh, player spotlights in the morning. I think they start around, around 8 o'clock and go to 10, and then I'll take an hour or two off, and then we'll do the uh, podcast as well. Todd, where can people keep up with you? The radio work is on hiatus, but... I am happy to say that we'll be back on MLB Network Radio on SiriusXM once the baseball playoffs are over. So as opposed to the Fantasy Channel, which were silent until the spring, uh, myself and Eric Alterman from RotoWire will have an hour on the network uh, every Saturday. Um, I don't know the time yet, but follow. You know, it should be a, a standard time each week. Um, I'm going to be doing some stuff for RotoWire over the course of the offseason as well. And knock on wood, my master's ball. Um, uh, stuff, if you will, will launch on November 1st and kind of, I, and then, then I head out, then I do all the customer service on the plane, which is going to be fun. 
But um, yeah, so Twitter always, uh, you know, try to, I don't want to say live tweet the playoffs, but um, you know, some, uh, some observations now and again during the playoffs and then uh, Sirius XM on Saturdays. And then when we get back together in the spring, I'll let you know where I'll be then. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire. Ray Murphy is a columnist and co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, October the 11th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 38 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts on this special Tuesday Roundtable edition, Todd Zola of Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and SiriusXM, has been a longtime contributor to Baseball HQ Radio and one of our best friends, and Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, is our American League beat reporter on the show, and it's always tremendous fun to talk baseball with Ray. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host and producer of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Google Pods, Pocket Casts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind about the show by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on the November 5th weekend with another special edition. It'll be Baseball HQ Radio at First Pitch Arizona in front of a studio audience, and that's always fun. We might have a special edition towards the end of the year if any huge news breaks at the baseball winter meetings. Otherwise, it's on to 2023. We should start putting out shows right around when pitchers and catchers report, and the whole process starts again. I'll say a bit more about my plans for the show in 2023 down the road, but for right now, this is Baseball HQ Radio. I'll talk with you again in November, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.